Father, Son, and the Holy Ghost. Amen. I studied for my master's degree at an institution called St. John's College. This college is famous for implementing a curriculum called the program, where students work their way through thousands of years of great books, learning from everyone from Paul and Thomas Aquinas to Friedrich Nietzsche and Sigmund Freud. Stringfellow Barr, who was the co-founder of the program, was once asked why they laid such stress on the great books. Barr replied, don't you feel sorry for all the students at all the other colleges who have no one to teach them but oafs like me? <laughs> In the epistle reading today, we have preserved a beautiful prayer from St. Paul. What an opportunity we have in front of us then. If I were to teach you a class on prayer, I'm afraid I would be at a loss. Many of you probably know much more about prayer than I do. But here we have a chance to learn from a real great. A distinguished teacher is here in the room with us, and we should pay attention to his lesson. Paul begins with a bit of reassurance. He has been imprisoned, and the Ephesians have heard a great deal, it seems, about his hardship and suffering. Paul is afraid that knowledge of it is overwhelming them. Sometimes our own sufferings, hard enough to bear by themselves, are overshadowed by our awareness of the sufferings of those whom we love. We feel powerless to provide any help and are burdened with guilt by knowing that these sufferings are partly for our sake, here because of Paul's mission to preach the gospel. So often we are reduced to a grief that can find no words when others describe their suffering to us. What can we say? But Paul would comfort the Ephesians with this thought that these sufferings are their glory. This is a profound mystery of the Christian faith. Glory and suffering go hand in hand. Those whom God calls to the greatest victories are also those who often suffer the darkest defeats. God's power does not flow like electricity. In the electrical grid, great voltages must travel along greater and greater towers, thicker wires, enormous generators. But it is God's glory to send the greatest power through the weakest vessels. God's power is made perfect in our weakness. We see a human being crushed by his troubles and we ask, how does he keep going? What gives him that seemingly invincible joy and peace? Nothing natural is sustaining him. Nothing merely human seems to hold him up anymore. He is suspended in midair, miraculously. And from this we know that it must be God. My grandmother experienced a sharp cognitive decline in her later years. She lost her memory and most of the time wasn't sure who most of us were. But still, every time you walked into her house, you felt loved by her just the same. A real affection and peace beamed from her face as soon as she saw you. So much had been taken away from her. What is closer to our sense of identity than our memories? So much had been taken away, but what was left was the love of Jesus, and it overflowed. It was her glory. It was God's glory. Paul mentions his posture. He bows his knees in prayer. This is a typical posture in our time, but it was more unusual back then. People usually stood to pray. 
This bowing of the knees suggests a posture of special humility. C.S. Lewis also reminds us that our posture is not irrelevant to our prayer. We are not merely beings in bodies. We are embodied beings. And what we do with our bodies is a factor in everything else we do. Can we pray with our body in any position? Can we pray as we drift off to sleep lying in bed? Can we say a quick prayer without bowing our heads or taking both hands from the steering wheel? Certainly. But it is normal to use certain postures habitually to put us in a prayerful state of mind. Our own dear verger, Don Holland, recently gave me a beautiful prayer desk as an ordination gift. To tell the truth, I've always wanted one, and I was immensely grateful when I found out he had made one for me. But even so, it has surprised me how much joy it has brought me to use it. For one thing, it's probably the most beautiful piece of furniture in my apartment, and being able to go to a beautiful place to pray reminds me what a beautiful thing it is to be able to pray to our Heavenly Father. But I think another part of the benefit has come from the ease it gives me in kneeling. I am always in the same posture when I go to my morning and evening prayers, and that helps to focus my thoughts. Paul addresses his prayer to the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Just as Jesus taught us to do, Paul prays, Our Father. There is a notion in popular theology today that God is everyone's Father. While it is certainly true that God created everyone, Scripture does not call God Father in this all-inclusive sense. The only begotten Son of God is our Lord Jesus Christ. God is his Father alone in the most complete sense. The rest of us become sons and daughters by adoption, and we must lay claim to this adoption by faith before its privileges can become fully formed in us. After Paul has addressed our Father and God, he next lays out his petitions. He prays that the Ephesians might be strengthened. Paul teaches us to pray like people who have enemies. The Christian life on this earth must be a battle, and for a battle, strength is required. In our baptisms, our sponsors declared war on three enemies on our behalf, the world, the flesh, and the devil. Against these pressures from the world around us that does not know God, and against our tendency to love the creation more than the creator, against these corrupted tendencies of our nature, and against our spiritual enemy who has aimed at humanity's destruction from the beginning, we must wage constant war. But in the words of Luther's famous hymn, did we in our own strength confide, our striving would be losing. It is God himself and the Holy Spirit who must provide the strength we need to win these daily battles. To whom does God give this strength? Does he withhold it from all except those who have proved themselves worthy of it? Such is a curious idea that reappears from time to time in Christian theology, that God gives us some grace to see how well we use it, and then replenishes us with more only when we have used our present supply well, or because he foresees that we will, by our own efforts, make good use of further gifts. Briefly, it is the theology of God helps those who help themselves, and this is the theology of the Roman Catholic and the Arminian. If that was the truth, our salvation would dangle by the thread of our own wise choices. What a horrible state that would be. I hope we know ourselves too well to believe that we could ever depend on such a thing as our own wisdom. 
But Paul doesn't pray that the Ephesians be strengthened according to their efforts, according to their good decisions, or according to their present or foreseen level of holiness. Paul prays that they be strengthened according to the riches of God's glory. Paul does not encourage the Ephesians to hold out their hands for further wages, but that they would prepare for the wealth of God's grace to be poured out to them in proportion to God's endless supply. He prays for strength to fall on them like a downpour from a sky dark with rain. Paul further specifies that this strength be granted to the inner man. The battlefield where the Christian life is fought is not out in the world we see around us, but the inner world of our soul, in our unseen desires and invisible thoughts. Paul further prays that Jesus might dwell in the hearts of the Ephesians. A contemporary cliche tells us that Christianity is not a religion, it's a relationship. If that phrase is intended to deny that Christianity has doctrines, practices, and its own set of norms distinguishing right from wrong, and I think it is often used that way, then it is false, and dangerously so. But if it is used to mean that Christianity is not simply doctrines, rituals, and rules, but is also a real relationship to a real person, then it is telling us something very true and important. To take up residence in our heart means that Jesus is closer to us than our most intimate friendship, than our most trusted confidant. That's precisely where he needs to be if he is going to be our captain and commander in the fight against sin. And it is our joy and our comfort to have him there, to know that we don't need to hide anything from him, that he knows our condition completely and is prepared to draw his battle line exactly where sin plans to attack us. And the means by which he dwells there is faith. It is our belief that enables Jesus to take up residence in our hearts, not our holiness or worthiness or good works, but our trust in him. Paul sums up these requests by saying that the Ephesians, when his prayers have been granted, will be rooted and grounded in love. Love is a vital connection from which we draw nourishment and a foundation upon which we build. Only a genuine love for God and for others will ultimately win the battle against sin. We can try to make progress in our spiritual lives by hating sin more, but ultimately we will find hate weaker than love. By growing in love for God and for others, we will be afraid and ashamed to disappoint God. Afraid not with a slave-like fear that is only trying to avoid punishment, but with the kind of reverence a son has for a beloved father. But all this spiritual progress is for the sake of something. Often, especially when people aren't speaking carefully, salvation is often spoken of as though it were an end in itself. To speak of being saved for the sake of something may strike our ears as a little odd. But towards the end of the fairy tale, when the hero has been delivered at the last possible moment from all his enemies, when all his foes lie defeated, when the crisis has passed, there's always one more thing. He has to marry the princess and live happily ever after. Salvation is Christ's defeat of the powers of darkness and is the end of the crisis our human race fell into through the disobedience of Adam. But that is not the end of the story. The hero must marry his bride, and in this case, this means Christ must marry his church. 
In St. John's Revelation, that means, among other things, that Jesus will dwell with us and wipe away all our tears. We will wake from our long struggle with sin and darkness and find ourselves in the sunlit arms of our beloved, and we will know a comfort in those arms beyond anything we have experienced in the most contented bliss that we have known in this life full of trouble. Interestingly, Paul describes this happy ending as a kind of knowledge, as a form of comprehension. Human beings are creatures wired to know things and understand things, wired to gaze on things and contemplate things. And it will be our eternal joy to know God more and more. And this is eternal life, St. John tells us, that they know you, the only true God. This knowledge, of course, is not the cold and abstract acquaintance with mathematical formula. It will be a knowing that engages our mind, but is also personal and full of profound emotion, the way one knows a piece of art or a symphony. Paul asks us to visualize this experience as though it were a figure of vast proportions. Theologians have come up with ingenious interpretations of what Paul means by breadth, length, and so on, but I think Calvin is right that these interpretations are more clever than helpful, that they have more to do with the ingenuity of the theologian than a reasonable attempt to grasp Paul's meaning. The point is that this love is vast and spreads out in all dimensions. We take it in to the extent we can, not as a line, not as a plane, but as an entire universe stretching out in all directions. The love of Christ is not something that will fit in our pockets or on our curio shelf. It is something we must dwell within. And much as we explore it, it will always be a bit beyond us, for it goes past what can be known. No matter how well we know God, we will never fully comprehend him. We will always be able to go further up and further in. But as we go further in, we are also filled further up. When Paul refers to being filled with the fullness of God, naturally he doesn't mean being filled with it the way our Lord was, but only according to our capacity to receive the peace, holiness, joy, and wisdom that are found in God alone. God is infinite, endless goodness, and we are merely finite beings. But that is good news for us in a sense because it means we will never be able to exhaust God's ability to delight and surprise us with further depths. Often we have a kind of horror of heaven, which comes from imagining it as merely fixed and static, as though we had to become constantly peeled and unblinking eyes, staring at a still and unchanging figure. But we should imagine it as a never-ending exploration, one that even in endless time always offers further and unimagined delights, fresh insights, and unexpected depths. Paul closes his prayer with praise. The final temptation of prayer is to think that God's ability to bless us is in any way limited by the quality of our prayers. Thinking so will cause us to become neurotically careful, always afraid that if we don't ask for the right things or pray the right way, we will end up putting a limit on God's ability to bless us. We should be afraid of no such thing. Paul tells us, on the contrary, that God is able to bless us far beyond our wildest imaginations of what he might do. What have we learned in Paul's lesson? He has taught us that we must pray like those who have enemies. 
We must pray as embodying, embodied beings fighting inner battles. We must pray to receive not according to our merits, but according to God's abundance. We must pray for a love of God. We must pray for a love of God which is not not which is knowledge and a knowledge which is love. And we must pray for confidence that our blessing is not according to our request, but according to God's wishes for us. Heavenly Father, that you would in your mercy grant us all these things. Amen.